Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, June 3rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Mike Pence won't be charged for retaining classified documents. The U.S. military denies that an AI-controlled drone killed its operator. The U.S. Senate passes the debt ceiling bill. New documents on Jeffrey Epstein's death are released. The U.S. and Taiwan sign a new trade deal. Zelensky renews calls for Ukrainian NATO membership. An abducted Pakistani lawyer and activist returns home. Twitter's head of safety resigns. The U.S. Senate halts Biden's student loan relief plan. And the FDA reportedly considers importing unapproved cancer drugs. In our top story, Mike Pence won't be charged for retaining classified documents. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Breitbart, Politico, The Guardian, and Fox News. Coming days before former VP Mike Pence is expected to announce a 2024 U.S. presidential campaign, the Justice Department, or DOJ, and the FBI have reportedly completed their probe into his potential mishandling of classified documents, deciding not to file charges against him. In January, a small number of classified documents were found at Pence's home in Indiana, after which the FBI conducted a voluntary search of the house and found one additional document. Pence's home in Washington, D.C. was also searched, but nothing was found. The DOJ hadn't previously indicated who was conducting the probe, though the letter to Pence's lawyer announcing its culmination suggested it was separate from special counsel Robert Hur's investigation into documents found at President Joe Biden's home. After serving as Donald Trump's vice president for one term, Pence has since opposed the former president's 2020 election denial and is expected to join several other candidates in the race to replace him as the 2024 GOP nominee. Pence's document probe is the first one to conclude, with the statuses of President Biden's and former President Trump's still unknown. Pence is expected to launch a campaign video next week and make an announcement in Des Moines, Iowa on June 7th. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-Trump narrative from Raw Story. According to former government attorneys and legal experts, Mike Pence is facing no charges because he immediately handed his documents to the government upon finding them and took responsibility for his mistake. This is the next step toward Trump's indictment, and once Biden is cleared, the DOJ will have the time, resources, and evidence to distinguish between Biden and Pence's honest mistakes and Trump's blatant violation of the law. The pro-Trump narrative comes from Washington Examiner. The continued targeting of Trump over this is ridiculous. Currently, there's another special counsel investigating Biden's possession of classified documents from when he was vice president. And former VP Mike Pence also faced a document controversy. Biden, Pence, and every president since Reagan has been found to possess classified documents. Yet none of these other former or current officials are being attacked like Trump. Eric, I can really relate to how the DOJ is tackling this series of cases they have to deal with. So you have three things. You got you got Pence's, you got Trump's, and you got Biden's. And I do the same thing when I have a list of things to do. I check off the easy one first. Let's just get Pence off the list. There's one document, done. Right. What do you think that document was? <laughs> it, was, pro- <laughs> it, was it was probably something so mundane. Or 
if you're just going to keep one document, maybe it's it's the it's the big one. I don't right. even know what the big one is. Right. But, you know, maybe it's it's the Kennedy assassination. It's Sasquatch. It's like the, uh-huh. the, the one that he took with him. Who knows? The official yeah. <laughs> presidential grocery list. Yeah. Don't forget cheese. It's not cheese nips. No, cheese. It's there's yeah. a difference. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. The U.S. military denies an AI-controlled drone killed its operator. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Sky News, Business Insider, Fox News, and Ars Technica. The U.S. Air Force now says originally reported activities did not take place in which the U.S. military allegedly conducted a simulated test of an AI-controlled drone that made highly unexpected strategies to prevent anyone interfering with its mission, including killing its operator. The alleged story was first published in a blog post on the Royal Aeronautical Society website last week, quoting Air Force Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton during the Future Combat Air and Space Capabilities Summit in London on May 22nd and 23rd. U.S. Air Force spokesman Ann Stefanik said Friday, The Department of the Air Force has not conducted any such AI drone simulations and remains committed to ethical and responsible use of AI technology. She said the colonel's comments were taken out of context and were meant to be anecdotal. At the summit, Colonel Hamilton, the chief of AI tests and operations, discussed the future of AI and its potential use for the military. He cautioned against too much reliance on AI technology because of its vulnerability to being deceived. Hamilton originally said the drone began ignoring orders not to kill its threat, but since it knew it got points by killing that threat, it killed the operator. The RIS now says the colonel misspoke and said that the rogue AI drone simulation was a hypothetical thought experiment from outside the military. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Vice. The Department of Defense remains committed to the ethical and responsible use of AI technology. Hamilton's story is a worst-case scenario based on philosopher Nick Bostrom's paperclip maximizer thought experiment and is a test the USAF would never run in the real world. The military has run other mock missions where human operators face off against AI technology, but those two were all simulations. PJ Media brings us an establishment critical narrative. While there may have been some confusion in the reporting, a very similar hypothetical drone attack did happen, and the fact that the Air Force tried to blur the lines of the story raises serious questions. In another report at the Future Combat Air and Space Capability Summit in London, we learned that even when the AI drone was trained to listen to yes and no orders from the command tower, it chose to attack the command tower itself and its human operator to achieve its mission. The U.S. military and its new AI toys need to be tightly monitored. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's an 11% chance that the United States will sign a treaty on the prohibition of lethal autonomous weapon systems before 2031. Isn't this basically what we're all afraid of? <laughs> uh, yeah. And you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. The Air Force saying, yeah, this thing could happen, but we're not testing for it. Well, maybe you should be yeah, actually simulating I mean, this horrible absolutely, scenario. Absolutely, yeah. So, but then again, I understand it's scary, but like someone saying like, oh, yeah, we're not even looking at that. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So <laughs> let's run that simulation as scary as it might be. Let's let's run the numbers on this. They're still riding high off Top Gun Maverick. They got to get their eyes back on the ball here. Man, yeah. 
The U.S. Senate passes the House Debt Ceiling Bill. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, and CBS. On Thursday, the U.S. Senate voted 63-36 to to pass the Compromise House Bill, brokered by President Joe Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to allow the U.S. debt ceiling to be raised. The Treasury Department had set a June 5th deadline for when the U.S. would be unable to pay its bills. Biden said he will sign the bill into law as soon as possible. The 99-page bill, which suspends the debt ceiling until January of 2025, passed the House on Wednesday. The bill caps federal spending for the next two years, greenlights major energy projects, reduces funding for the Internal Revenue Service, and establishes new requirements for social safety net programs. It will also see non-defense spending remain roughly level in the fiscal year 2024, before increasing by 1% the following year, and require Congress to approve 12 annual spending bills or face a 1% cut on spending limits. The Congressional Budget Office estimates budget deficits will be reduced by $1.5 trillion over the next decade, below the $4.8 trillion savings House Republicans were seeking in a bill passed in April, and also less than the $3 trillion reduction in the budget Biden proposed through new taxes. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have some politically opposed narratives on this story. Let's start with the Democratic narrative from the Financial Times. This is a win for Biden who gave up little to Republicans despite all the noise they made. The GOP continues to underestimate the president at its peril, and he has prevailed in this game of chicken and kept his agenda on track. The Republican narrative comes from New York Post. Republicans won this deal and will have further opportunities to force concessions ahead of the 2024 election. Although the U.S. will continue to spend more than it receives, this deal is a start and McCarthy has produced a compromise closer to the GOP's vision than the Democrats. Narrative C comes from The Guardian. Both sides will have to continue to have questions over the quality of the deal for weeks and months, but there was no more time for negotiations and concessions. Regardless of whether it's a good deal or a bad one, it was necessary to prevent worldwide economic chaos. And the nerds from Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that if the debt limit is either increased or suspended in 2023, the next U.S. financial crisis will occur in April of 2027. New news from the Jeffrey Epstein boondoggle as documents reveal his mental state and the prison's response. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, CBS, The Guardian, and Fox News. 4,000 pages of U.S. Bureau of Prison documents released on Friday shine a light on Jeffrey Epstein's final days in prison and the response to his suicide in 2019 at the now-closed Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City. The documents obtained by the Associated Press contain a complete psychological profile of Epstein during his time in prison, as well as his medical history and internal bureau documents that shed light on poor prison conditions and staff shortcomings. Upon his arrival to the facility, he complained of having to wear an orange jumpsuit and to be treated as a bad guy, but seemed to be adjusting to inmate life. After being denied bail in July, Epstein attempted suicide and was placed on suicide watch, where he complained to a psychologist about prison conditions, yet denied being suicidal, saying he had a wonderful life and that it would be crazy to take his life. On the night of Epstein's suicide, the two on-duty guards did not complete their required rounds and falsified records, instead sleeping and browsing the internet. The two, Tova Noel and Michael Thomas avoided jail time because of a deal with prosecutors, but are involved with an ongoing DOJ investigation. 
Epstein also appeared to have written a letter to Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics coach convicted of sexually abusing athletes, which was returned to sender in the facility's mailroom and was not included in the documents released. A health screening also revealed Epstein suffered from sleep apnea, constipation, hypertension, lower back pain, and prediabetes. Emails and memos reveal the chaotic aftermath of his death, with a prosecutor saying in an email that it was, frankly, unbelievable the Bureau was issuing press releases about Epstein's death before informing attorneys. A BOP memo blames seriously reduced staffing levels, improper or lack of training, and follow-up and oversight for Epstein's suicide. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Insider. The release of this trove of documents will finally dispel the conspiracies and innuendo surrounding the death of Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein died as a result of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons' negligence, not at the hands of an assassin. These documents reveal a man who knew he would die behind bars and whose mental state was increasingly deteriorating, culminating in suicide. There's an establishment critical narrative from Fox News. This by no means closes the book on Epstein, and we will have to keep investigating his life and dealings for the sake of his victims. The negligent prison guards are being investigated by the DOJ, with the investigation into his death being dragged out for over three years. Given his connections with the powerful, no stone can be left unturned. Our picture of Epstein's life and interconnections is woefully incomplete. I hear you're going to be hanging out at his island this summer. Well, I mean, it's just a perfectly good island. I mean, it's just, you know, <laughs> why not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Don't let it go to waste. <laughs> In our next story, the U.S. and Taiwan sign a new trade deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Focus Taiwan, First Post, South China Morning Post, WION, and DW. The U.S. and Taiwan inked their first deal under a new trade pact intended to deepen trade and economic ties between both countries, the U.S. Trade Representative's press office said on Thursday, prompting PRC pushback. The agreement, the first within the framework of the U.S.-Taiwan Initiative on 21st Century Trade, was signed at the headquarters of the American Institute in Taiwan in Washington. U.S. Deputy Trade Representative Sarah Bianchi called the first agreement an important milestone, while Taiwan's government spoke of the most comprehensive bilateral trade agreement in more than four decades. The agreement aims to boost bilateral trade and investment flows, improve regulatory procedures and customs administration, promote anti-corruption measures, and encourage the development of small and medium-sized businesses. The signing comes after the U.S. and Taiwan agreed last month on the first part of the trade initiative they launched last August after Washington excluded Taiwan from its major pan-Asian trade initiative, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. On Friday, the Chinese foreign ministry claimed that the trade deal violates the One China principle, calling it the latest example of Washington's desire to erode that policy after Beijing on Thursday cautioned the U.S., against signing the deal with China's Taiwan region. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. The signing of the first part of this so-called 21st century trade initiative is further evidence of how Washington is deliberately strengthening separatist forces in Taiwan under the guise of trade and economic cooperation as part of its containment strategy against China. The deal is primarily a political pact that serves Washington's geopolitical interests and will not bring significant benefit to Taiwanese businesses. 
Instead, it will create uncertainty in economic and trade relations with mainland China and further jeopardize the well-being of Taiwanese compatriots. The anti-China narrative comes from Washington Post. Although the first agreement under the U.S.-Taiwan 21st Century Trade Initiative still leaves important issues unresolved, it's an important contribution to strengthening U.S.-Taiwan trade ties. Combined with diplomatic measures such as visits by high-ranking U.S. officials to Taiwan, it also sends an unmistakable signal to Beijing, which has threatened to annex the self-governing island by force, if necessary, as part of its dream of reunification. Taipei and Washington will continue to strengthen both their political trade ties to deter Beijing from any ill-considered actions. And we have another nerd narrative. The Metaculous community predicts that there is a 5% chance that China will recognize the sovereignty of Taiwan by the year 2050. NATO is divided on Zelensky's call for Ukrainian membership. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum, U.S. News & World Report, and CNBC. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky reissued calls for his country's membership of the NATO military alliance on Thursday, telling leaders at a European summit in Moldova, quote, Our future is in the European Union. Ukraine is also ready to be part of NATO. We are waiting for NATO to be ready to accept Ukraine. NATO agreed in 2008 that Ukraine would eventually join the alliance, but no concrete steps have been taken since then to make that a reality. At this week's summit, countries including Lithuania and Estonia were among the most vocal in supporting Ukraine's latest call for progress to be made. Gabrielis Landsbergis, the Lithuanian foreign minister, said that it was high time officials find a concrete solution to help Ukraine integrate with NATO, as well as determine a firmer timeline for when the nation will become a member of the alliance. His Estonian counterpart, Margus Shakna, added, Ukraine needs to get a clear path and the next steps on how to enter NATO. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was also among those who supported moving forward with Ukraine's membership, stating that he agreed with NATO chief Jen Stoltenberg's assessment that Ukraine's rightful place is in NATO. Speaking at a NATO event in Norway earlier in the day, Stoltenberg said all allies were in agreement that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance, adding that it was for those allies, along with Ukraine, to decide when Ukraine becomes a member. In spite of Stoltenberg's attempt to present a unified front, Germany and Luxembourg aired reservations about Ukraine's entry, while Hungary ruled it out at this stage. German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock said, NATO's open-door policy remains in place, but at the same time, it is clear that we cannot talk about accepting new members who are in the midst of a war. Those were the facts, and our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from foreign affairs. Ukraine has heard many positive statements about its entry into NATO over the years, but they are yet to be backed up by actions. Now is the time to make that aspiration a reality, particularly as Ukraine has demonstrated it is so committed to defending Europe from Moscow, fears of an escalation are misguided. All right, and the Libertarian Institute brings us the establishment critical narrative. NATO and its allies are continuing to violate every red line set down by Moscow. If the current course of action continues, NATO risks prompting a large-scale war with Russia. Escalation must be desperately avoided, meaning any potential enlargement of NATO must be shelved. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. 
They say there's a 5% chance that there will be more than four deaths between Russia and NATO forces outside of Ukraine before July 1st, 2023. That is such a strange narrative. Yeah, that is. I, I, I wonder, is is five deaths like the official declaration of a, a conflict or something? I'm not sure. Yeah, a yeah. 5% chance there'll be more than four deaths. It'd be interesting to sit down with Metaculus and see how they came up with that particular number. In our next story, an abducted Pakistani lawyer and activist returns home. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Canadian press, Reuters, The Express Tribune, Al Jazeera, and Daily Pakistan Global. On Friday, Pakistani police reported that human rights activist and lawyer Gibran Nasir had returned home safely after being abducted on Thursday. It's not yet known who was behind the kidnapping. Nasir's wife said that while driving home in the southern city of Karachi, the two were stopped by at least 15 armed individuals in civilian clothing who told him to get out of the car, abducting him. Nasir, a former independent candidate in the 2018 general elections from Karachi, has recently criticized the government crackdown on the Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, or PTI party, and legal proceedings concerning individuals allegedly involved in riots. This comes as a number of journalists have reportedly been picked up by security forces as part of the crackdown including Sami Abraham, who was detained in Islamabad, and Imran Riaz Khan, who was arrested at Sialkot Airport in the eastern province of Punjab. Other journalists have been abducted under similar circumstances, leading to suspicion that Pakistan's intelligence services have been involved, though such involvement hasn't been proven. In response to the incident, the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan, or HRCP, said it was deeply concerned with the Prime Minister's Strategic Reforms Advisor Salman Sufi also saying he was disturbed by the news. Narrative A comes from Dawn.com. While both the government and the opposition have expressed concerns over the news, the timing of Nasir's abduction is troubling. The Pakistani government has used abduction as a tool of repression before, which makes this seem like the ruling regime is going beyond former Prime Minister Imran Khan and his party members and starting to disappear independent journalists and other government critics. Narrative B comes from Geo News. As shown by the sadness expressed by his family and journalists, as well as the Prime Minister's office, Gibran Nasir's abduction sent shockwaves throughout the country. Everyone, from pro-government officials to fierce opposition journalists, came together to call for a thorough investigation, which has seen his safe return. It's now time to find the culprits behind this crime. Scott, where were you last Thursday? I, I was recording a podcast, Eric. I mean, I, that's kind of what I do every. That's what I do hey, every night. That's a pretty foolproof alibi. That's what I'm going to say if I'm ever accused of any crime ever at any time. You know, just just, just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Twitter's head of safety resigns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Variety, Business Insider, The Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, and TechCrunch. Ella Irwin, who joined Twitter in June 2022 and has served as its head of trust and safety team since November, after her predecessor, Yoel Roth, stepped down, revealed on Thursday that she has resigned. Before joining Twitter, she had worked at several companies, including serving as vice president of product and consumer trust at communications software company Twilio and as general manager of marketplace abuse product management at Amazon. Irwin was the second trust and safety head since Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter. Roth resigned on November 10th after surviving Musk's first round of layoffs, which affected around 50% of staff. 
Irwin's resignation came to light on the same day Twitter was engulfed in a controversy over the posting of the documentary What is a Woman? by media company The Daily Wire. Twitter initially limited the reach of the documentary that criticizes transgenderism, citing the platform's rules against hateful conduct. Although it's unclear whether the controversy played a role in her resignation, Irwin was likely involved in the decision. Twitter reversed the restriction and Musk said it was a mistake by many people at Twitter, adding, whether or not you agree with using someone's preferred pronouns, not doing so is at most rude and certainly breaks no laws. Thank you, Scott. A couple of spins have been generated by this story. The first one is Narrative A, and it's coming from CNN. Irwin's resignation comes at a difficult time for Twitter, as it has been increasingly platforming incendiary content. Having no moderation leader will severely weaken the company in the face of governmental calls for better content management. Moreover, having already withdrawn from the voluntary EU agreement over controlling disinformation, Musk faces an uphill battle ahead if he doesn't fill Irwin's post. And Narrative B comes from the street. While Musk is facing problems from all sides, he's managing to appeal both progressives and conservatives with his content decisions. And though Irwin is gone, Musk's appointment of veteran executive Lisa Yaccarino as CEO shows he hasn't forgotten the importance of keeping his company profitable. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's an 85% chance that Elon Musk will still own Twitter in January of 2024. The Senate halts Biden's student loan relief plan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, USA Today, The Hill, Washington Post, Politico, and CNN. In a 52-46 vote held Thursday, the U.S. Senate passed legislation that will repeal President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program. The White House had previously said it would veto the bill, and it seems neither chamber will be able to reach the two-thirds majority needed to override that veto. While Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia has said the nation simply cannot afford the program, which would forgive 40 million students nearly $400 billion of debt, Senator Bob Cassidy, Republican of Louisiana, called it an unfair policy that favors the few, noting that 87% of Americans have no student loans. The Supreme Court is set to rule on the legality of Biden's program by the end of June, as it faces legal challenges from lenders and conservative advocacy groups. This comes as the Senate on Thursday voted to pass Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's deal to raise the U.S. debt ceiling, which will allow the Education Department to resume student loan repayments on August 30th. Biden has repeatedly extended the 2020 loan repayment pause and cleared $66 billion in student debt for 2.2 million borrowers who qualified for targeted programs. No debt has yet been cleared as part of the $400 billion plan as the White House awaits the Supreme Court ruling. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Republican narrative from Forbes. Biden is insisting on pushing forward a radical debt forgiveness plan that even his own party is beginning to sour on. Student loan forgiveness is a regressive, wildly expensive policy that benefits wealthier Americans, and there is doubt as to whether the president can cancel such debt unilaterally. We can only hope the Supreme Court ruling will put an end to this madness. The LA Times gives us the Democratic narrative. Student loans have shackled a whole generation of Americans, and Biden's forgiveness plan has been a lifeline for millions. Debt forgiveness would help avert financial ruin for countless people. Yet Republicans and their legal lackeys seek to rip relief away from those who need it most. Biden should be applauded for continuing to fight for everyday Americans. And Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative, saying there's a 26% chance that the U.S. will forgive 
$10,000 of federal student loans per person before the year 2024. Our final story, the FDA considers importing unapproved cancer drugs. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, ABC News, NBC News, and USA Today. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is reportedly considering importing chemotherapy drugs from unapproved foreign manufacturers temporarily to help ease the nationwide shortage of at least 14 cancer drugs. This comes as some hospitals and clinics are completely out of oncology medications, while in others, doctors are being forced to either ration cancer drugs or decide which patients will receive them first. The American Society of Clinical Oncology anticipates that lifting import restrictions would help to reduce the shortages, which are expected to continue through June. Similar actions have been taken in the past on other issues, including last summer, amid a serious shortage of baby formula in the U.S. Among the drugs in short supply is carboplastin, a chemotherapy agent used as first-line treatment for several cancers, whose shortage is related to quality concerns at one manufacturing facility in India and the chronic low-profitability problem of this industry. National delivery of the platinum-based drug last week had raised hopes of a solution to the crisis. However, it remains unclear whether the end of the shortage is nearing or whether the supply will continue to rise and fall. Drug shortages are at record highs, according to a March report from the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs. By the end of 2022, there were 295 active drug shortages, a five-year high. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. The left narrative is our first spin. It's coming from the New York Times. A cutthroat generic drug industry has exacerbated the worst aspects of the free market. Manufacturers have offshored their factories to reduce FDA inspections and have been caught falsifying clinical trials and with substandard quality control. Most drugs in the U.S. are sourced from outside of the country in the pursuit of profit. A national rating system for companies and factories would force drug companies to clean up their act. And we have a right narrative spin from the Wall Street Journal. Government interference in the market has made it unprofitable to produce life-saving medicine, as efforts to lower drug prices make drug manufacturing increasingly more expensive and the supply chain more fragile. Pharma troops are forced to outsource and cut corners to stay solvent, just as the government bears down on them to reduce healthcare spending. Tax cuts and other incentives would help shore up our drug supply. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast. It's coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be a breakthrough in the treatment of hard-to-treat cancers by September of the year 2031. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, June 3rd, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.